So much of parenting is modeling the behavior we want our children to emulate. How a parent speaks and treats others within and outside the home has the greatest impact on the child's development. The words we use, the words our children use for better or for worse. The instructions we give to our children or students for that matter, often fall into two categories, you shall or you shall not. Our son, David, now 28, was not a defiant kid. Nancy and I recall when David was in elementary school, giving him a firm, clear, you shall not, about one thing or another, probably limiting his video time. Something like, David, do not spend more than another five minutes on that Game Boy. We'll never forget his uncharacteristic response. Mom and dad, he declared, you're not the boss of me. We shielded David from our delight in seeing this gumption rise up in him. Then, wiping the smile off our faces, we made it clear, well, David, yes, we are the boss of you. This, in a nutshell, is what plays out in Torah. God, in the role of a parent, gives the Israelites very specific instructions, commandments, that fall into these two categories, thou shall or thou shall not. And throughout Torah, the Israelites, by their actions, are saying to God, through the prophets, you're not the boss of me. This is really what's remarkable about our millennia-old sacred text, in how sophisticated our ancient ancestors were in understanding human nature and the human enterprise to be the best we can. Though perhaps a bit simplistic, when we read a commandment in Torah, a shall or shall not, it's because it's not an easy thing to do. Doing the right thing is easier said than done. Tonight from this week's double Torah portion, Acharemot Kedoshim, I'll give you three examples a you shall, a you shall not, and we'll conclude with the biggest you shall of them all. First we read, Hoche ach tochiach et amitecha velotisa alav chet. Reprove your kinsman, but incur no guilt because of him. Here we are commanded that it is our responsibility should we witness an infraction, to reprimand a fellow citizen. We immediately know why we are commanded to do so, because it's so darned hard to do. Each of us has been there. We witness someone doing something that appears a violation of some sort. Maybe someone is verbally abusing another, physically abusing them, 
breaking the law in some way or just not being very kind. The easiest thing to do is to not get involved, to tell ourselves it's not our business. Of course, because we're constantly stumbling upon a scene out of context, we are always interpreting what's happening. My sister Catherine, who lives in Buffalo, shared such an example just a few weeks ago. She was out taking a walk and saw two men standing in front of a funeral home about a foot apart from each other. One had a red t-shirt, the other a Buffalo police officer. My sister in as kind a way as possible, though bent on doing her civic duty, even with a law enforcement officer, got their attention and motioning with her hand said, gentlemen, social distancing? At which point the fellow in the red shirt sheepishly replied, uh, ma'am, I'm being arrested. So we do the best we can to read a situation, make a judgment call, and I would say better to lean towards reproach at the expense of misreading the situation. But there are ground rules to observe. The sages forbid reprimanding another to the point of embarrassing them. Further, they insisted, it should be a loving rebuke never done to belittle somebody. Ultimately, if our intervention is unsuccessful, the commandment makes it clear that we've done our duty as a citizen, a friend, a family member, and will bear no guilt for another's indiscretion. We can't control the outcome, but we can act, do the best we can without unreasonably putting ourselves in harm's way in order to prevent an abuse or violation. Secondly, we read, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your countrymen. Again, Torah understands the human condition. If someone wrongs us, our natural reflex is to repay the wrong in kind. And Torah itself buckles to the inclination for payback saying in other places of Torah, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The rabbis seek to reconcile this inner biblical contradiction by interpreting this as compensation that must be paid for the way the victim was harmed, not a literal eye for an eye. Otherwise, this is known as personal injury law. Vengeance, as we know all too well, is a vicious cycle with no winners. Akin to ven vengeance is holding a grudge. Outside of the most extreme crimes, if a person has hurt you in some way and they take responsibility for it, apologize and make restitution, otherwise known as teshuva in Judaism, it's the victim's place to forgive. 
Holding a grudge is not fair to the person who has sincerely made amends. And it's even more damaging to the person holding the grudge. Hanging on to a resentment someone once said is like drinking poison and hoping it will kill someone else. It's not good for our own well-being to hold on to that poison. It only adds insult to injury. Finally, when the great Rabbi Akiva was asked to select what he considered the most important commandment in all of Torah, one that represented the essence of Judaism, his answer was, V'ahavta l'reacha kamocha, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why the most important commandment? Perhaps because it's the hardest to achieve and can only be realized after climbing the rungs of other commandments. It's no coincidence that you shall love your neighbor as yourself follows the commands to reprove your fellow citizen and to not take vengeance or bear a grudge. If you haven't mastered those, it will be difficult to rise to the highest rung. The wise Rabbi Hillel, understanding just how hard it is to love your neighbor as yourself, had the chutzpah to change the biblical verse. When challenged by an aspiring convert to sum up all of Torah while standing on one foot, Hillel, without missing a beat, answered, what is hateful to you, don't do to another person. The rest is commentary. Now go and study it. Hillel understood the biggest stumbling block in realizing the original commandment. It's hard work to love yourself. Only then is it possible to love your neighbor. Hillel chose not to make becoming a Jew insurmountable. I have no doubt he stood with Akiva with the primacy of the original verse. At the end of the day, there's nothing more important to your clergy, the teachers in the Solel Preschool and Raker Religious School, than to affirm the beauty of everyone that steps through the doors of Temple Solel. That's what the entrance to Temple Solel should represent, and it's portable, an entrance carried to each of your homes. We see your goodness. We honor the divine spark in each of your souls. Our prayer is that you see it and honor it as well. We want everyone in our community and connected to our community to love yourself just as you are. Judaism on one hand wants each of us to continue to grow in wisdom and kindness throughout our lives. And on the other hand, to love yourself just as you are right now. It's a commandment because it's so darned hard to do. Yet the incentive is great for us to reach it. 
just imagine, just imagine how the world would be transformed if we really loved our neighbors as ourselves. When we rise to the best of ourselves, heeding the biblical you shalls and you shall nots, it makes the world before us blossom like Arizona cacti in bloom, rewarding us as we build our world from love.